0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Matthew was written for the Jewish people. As a Jew writing for Jewish people, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles, you say, look, you people know Jesus of Nazareth who preached, who taught, who healed the people. Now, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So, you pick up Matthew chapter 1 as it is written in the book, the prophecy of Isaiah, of Hosea, and on and on it goes. He is proving to the Jewish people, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then we go on to Mark. Mark writes for the Romans. Mark is not a gospel of lengthy discourses. Mark is a gospel of action and that fits the Romans precisely. That is, the Romans were people on the go much like modern Westerners. Go, go, go. Then you go on to Luke. And Luke is a Gentile, born and raised in Antioch. Greek is his native language. And Luke is writing a gospel for the Greek-speaking world. Now we go on to the fourth gospel. The fourth gospel was written at least 30 years after the synoptics. John is writing as an eyewitness and John is giving us additional information, additional revelation. That is... There is no repetition in the Gospel of John, except for the feeding of the 5,000, but that is followed by a discourse on the bread of life. What God is saying is, I am giving you information, revelation, if you please. My word. And then you go on to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, you would expect all kinds of references to the Lord Jesus Christ, to His ministry, to His preaching and teaching. And there's nothing. There's one word of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that's interesting. (laughs) but it's put in the context of as you remember. In other words, orally. By the way, the oral gospel, Jesus' words have been kept in memory. But God is saying, I am not interested in repeating what you find in four gospels. I am interested in showing you how the church of Jesus Christ developed from Jerusalem, to Antioch and Cyprus, to Asia Minor, on to Macedonia and Achaia in the south of Greece, and then on to Rome. The last word in the book of Acts is unhindered, akkolutos. Unhindered. What is unhindered? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ going forth into the world from Paul's rented house in Rome, mission headquarters. Yes, he was a prisoner, and there was a soldier, and probably the soldier had <laughs> the chain and paul and she, do you think that paul sat there and say well let's call the soldier claudius claudius beautiful day isn't it yes we may expect a bit of rain this afternoon but a beautiful day of course not what paul said claudius let me tell you about the lord jesus christ and he brought this man to a saving knowledge of the lord And if you know anything about the military, you're transferred. So this soldier, let us say, was transferred to France with the gospel of the Lord. And another soldier came and he was sent on to Spain and another, and on and on. And Paul received all kinds of people coming to him for two whole years, sending them forth into the world. And that's how the gospel, that is, the book of Acts, ends. Now we go to Romans. Now, that's not Paul's first epistle, by the way. Romans has been put in the order because it is the longest book. Sixteen chapters. We call Romans the charter of Christianity. In simple terms... The book of Romans teaches us sin, the first seven chapters. Then salvation, chapter 8 through 11. And then service, chapters 12 through 16. And there you have the division. And there you have the message. And there you have the book of Romans. Sin, salvation, service. We go on to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book not just written for the church in Corinth, which had all kinds of problems, but for the church universal. Think of it. Chapter 5. Incest. And now we live in an incestuous society. It fits. Chapter 6. Lawsuits. Now we live in a society that has numerous frivolous lawsuits. And chapter 7 deals with marriage, divorce, separation, (laughs) singles, and widows. Well, that covers the waterfront quite well. And in chapter, going on, into chapter 15, a chapter on the resurrection. Now, if there's anything that is relevant, it's the resurrection. We go on to Second Corinthians. In Second Corinthians, Paul is going through rough times. And he starts out by talking about comfort. God is with me, regardless. And then he talks about Moses and the glory on his face, beaming forth from his face because he has been with God on Mount Sinai. He said, you too have the Lord Jesus day by day. Going on to Galatians. Galatians is the book on Christian liberty. We are set Free because of Christ. We don't have to have the 616 man made laws of the Jews. We are set free and serve Him thankfully. Ephesians. And that's a book on ecclesiology. ecclesiology. The doctrine of the church. What is the church all about? Philippians. An epistle on joy. Rejoice. And again I say to you, rejoice. Followed by Colossians. An epistle on Christology. The doctrine of Christ. And then we have the smaller epistles. We have First and Second Thessalonians, dealing with eschatology. Paul already had dealt with eschatology in First Corinthians 15. Now, once more, in Chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Chapter 2, eschatology. And then you have the practical, practical epistles. What elders and deacons have to do in First Timothy and so on. And then we come to Hebrews. Interesting. Hebrews. The message of Hebrews is the priesthood of Christ. And nowhere in the four Gospels, nowhere in the book of Acts, nowhere in Paul's epistles, nowhere in Peter's epistles, nowhere in John's epistles, nowhere in James or Jude, do you read a word about the priesthood of Christ. Now, you and I know a little bit, and you know the three offices of Christ, Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, you mentioned John chapter 1. Are you the prophet? Chapter 7. We have found the prophet, namely Jesus. King, well, you go to Matthew chapter (laughs) 1. And yeah, the first 17, I know exactly what you people do when you come to the first 17 verses of chapter 1, Gospel of Matthew, skip them, verse 18. Now, this is how, who is interested in all these names? Now, why does Matthew put all these names right at the beginning of his Gospel? But to tell you, Jesus is born of royal descent. Then go into chapter 2. The wise men, three according to the Christmas card, Scripture doesn't tell you. We don't know how many. The wise men came and said, Where is he born king of the Jews? Now a king is never born. A prince is born. Prince Charles in England is still Prince Charles, even though he's approaching 60. When his mother died, then he may or may not become king. And otherwise men say, where is he born? King of the Jews. And then you go through the gospel, and what do you find? The word king and kingship over and over again. Now, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Well, here is the woman, here is the man, here is... And on and on and goes. There are ten kingdom parables. And then you come to chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus is ready to ascend to heaven. And his words are, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's his enthronement speech. The king ascends. And now God in His grace and goodness and providence says, and now I want an epistle completely dedicated to the priesthood of Christ. And there you have the priesthood. In all 13 chapters, you'll find the priesthood of Christ. And we're going to talk about that. I quickly go on through the other epistles. You have Peter talking about hardship, persecution, it really speaks to many people that is Christians on the face of the earth today. I'm sure that if Christians in Nigeria, Christians in the Sudan, Christians in Indonesia read 1st Peter, they say, that's for us. He is a man who talks about hardship being a follower of Christ. And then Second Peter, eschatology. Then we have the epistles of John and the epistle of Jude. By the way, Jude is quite well the same as Second Peter chapter 2, and we'll deal with that eventually. And then we have the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. What I want you to do for a moment, we'll pick that up right later, but... Look at chapter 22, chapter 22 of Revelation. And read with me verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life. And in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a copyright of the entire Bible. God says, hands off. My book. Not yours. Now, what about the Mormons? Ah, uh, you say, I'm going to tell a Mormon. <laughs> when this happens, i say. And he says, Well, we haven't add, as added a single word to the book of Revelation. What are you talking about? And you say, Ugh. Or you say, Sir, excuse me, but in the book of Revelation are some 278 direct references to the Old Testament and numerous references to the New Testament. And what we have here is God saying, hands off of my revelation. This is it the entire Old Testament, the New Testament. And now I've come to the end and I'm saying this is my total revelation, special revelation. Okay, so much by way of introduction. Now we go on to Hebrews. We begin with chapter 1 and we notice that in this Chapter You find quotations, and a closer look will teach you that the quotations are taken from the Psalter. Have a look, verse 5 You are my son, today I become your father, and that is taken from Psalm 2, verse 7. Then you have a messianic quotation taken from 2 Samuel. 7 verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. This was spoken to Solomon, but fulfilled by Jesus. Then you go on and you read in verse 6, God saying about his firstborn, let all God's angels worship him. Now let's have a closer look at that verse because my reference Bible tells me it is taken from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And now will you please go to Deuteronomy 32 and you will find there the Song of Moses. The title of that chapter is the Song of Moses beginning at verse 30 of the preceding chapter. That is, Deuteronomy 31, verse 30. That's the last verse. I'm not going to read the entire Song of Moses, but i call your attention to verse 43. And I'm reading the NIV. And I would like to ask, is there anyone here who has the New no revised standard version. Anyone? Not, so yes, sir. You have it. Good. I'm going to ask you in a moment to read it for us. <clears throat> Rejoice, O nations, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants. He will take vengeance on His enemies, and make atonement for His land and people. And my NIV study Bible has a note after rejoice, O nations, with His people. And it reads as follows. It says, the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, see also the Septuagint, reads, rejoice, O nations, with His people, and let all the angels worship Him. And then it continues, For He will avenge the blood of His servants. Okay? Now, what does the new revised standard version have? Praise, O heavens, His people. Worship Him, all you gods, for He will avenge the blood of His children. Okay, thank you. That's good enough. All you gods, angels, is the other translation. So, this comes out of the Septuagint. And we said earlier that the writer of Hebrews and the recipients of the epistle used the Septuagint. So, the writer has now put in that all God's angels worship Him. It's not found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Okay, and move on. Verse 7 in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. And that is taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. Verse 8. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That is taken from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. I continue and I read verse 10. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. And that is taken from Psalm 102, the verses 25 through 27. And then he finishes up by saying, To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, what we have here is a series of Psalm citations. Now, when you go to the bookstore and you say, I'd like to buy a New Testament, undoubtedly the clerk will say, would you also like to have the New Testament and the Psalms? You know, they appear in one volume. And only a couple of dollars extra and you buy that. Two for the price of one, so to speak. But, what happened in the early Christian church at the end of the first century? These people come to church carrying a Bible? Well, they had scrolls. Okay, two armfuls of scrolls, and then when you sat down in the pew, you had to unroll the scroll and find the exact place? No. No. The author of Hebrews is saying to himself, the people know the Psalms because they are singing the Psalms in the worship services, and they have memorized the Psalms. So I'm going to use the Psalms, and immediately I have contact with them. That's a good observation. So we have six quotations from the Psalms and one from Messianic passages which is also well known. That's the first thing I'd like to say. Next, what is the writer trying to prove in that very first chapter? We talked about it a little while ago when I said Look, the emphasis is on the divinity of Jesus, called the Son. Well, yes. The first thing you read is, In the past, God spoke. Okay, how did he speak? By way of the Old Testament, to the forefathers, through the prophets, in many times, many ways, various ways. So you have dreams. You have God coming to Abraham in the form of an, a, of an angel, or a human being. Uh, all kinds of ways of in, informing and communicating His people, with His people. But He says, over against that, in these last days, and He's now talking about the New Testament era, in these last days, He has spoken, that is, God has spoken to us by His Son. That means that God speaks and woe to us if we say we are only interested in the New Testament. We couldn't care less about the Old Testament because it's only a book of examples and nothing more. Sorry, God spoke. And that's sufficient. Now, Then he says, whom he appointed heir of all things. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) You know, we are acquainted with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. Ah, everybody knows that text. Did you ever stop to think? Couldn't John have written it differently? Much the same as we have here in Hebrews chapter 1. For God so loved his son so much that he made him heir of this world. Well, that makes sense. Doesn't the writer of Hebrews says he made him heir of all things? And yes, no. John says, for God so loved the world. Let me now be honest with you. I was ordained way back in nineteen sixty one, probably a few years before you were born, but I have never yet had the courage to preach on John three sixteen. And you say, well why not? Yeah, a student who is a junior, a middle or senior quickly pick up John three sixteen and and preach. Hold on a moment. What do you do? With the word so for God, so, s o. Oh no. What do you do with the word loved? That's agapao in the Greek. Divine love. The world. What is meant by the world? God's creation, yes, okay. He makes his sun to shine upon the righteous and the un causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. You know those texts, yes. God is good to all, Psalm 145, 10, all these texts, yes. Or is it us, the elect, he has loved us. Or is it humanity? Or does he even show his love to the fallen world that hates him how do you explain that one word, world W O R L D, the cosmos in the Greek and then you continue and think for one thing for one moment do you think when John stood at the cross that Friday afternoon Jesus was in his dying moments and John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. I don't think so. I think that 30, no, 60 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, 60 years later, John wrote his gospel and then guided by the Holy Spirit who brought to his remembrance all that Jesus said and did and then wrote and said, this is it. Here's a summary of the gospel for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. The writer of Hebrews writes, he appointed him heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Why do you celebrate the Sunday and not Saturday as a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, look, it's right here. He made the universe through the agency of Christ. And then we have the Old Testament dispensation. And then Jesus came, ministered to his people. Then he died and he rose on the first day of the week. And that's a resurrection. And what is so significant about the resurrection? The resurrection is taught only get this, only by the Christian church. You don't hear it among the Jews. They don't teach it. The Muslims don't teach it. The Hindus don't teach it. The Buddhists don't teach it. And in Japan, Shinto religion doesn't teach it. And secularism doesn't teach it either, nor does Communism. It's only Christianity teaches The resurrection of the dead. There it is. We celebrate every Sunday anew the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, note. after he had provided purification for sins. That's the priesthood. You see it? He sat down by his. At the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's the kingship. You see it? And you already read. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's the prophet. Prophet. They have the three offices of Christ. There's more. Will you please count the descriptions of the sun? Okay, here we go. Follow me. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, number one. The exact representation of His being, number two. Sustaining all things by His powerful word, Three. After he provided purification for sins. Four. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. That's five. And now I go back to verse two. He He was appointed heir of all things. That's number six. And seven through whom he made the universe. That's seven. See? Seven characteristics of... The son. S-O-N. And seven is the number of completeness. It's full. Okay. Next, verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, mention a name of an angel. Michael, Michael, that's one. Gabriel, Gabriel, number two. Any others? (laughs) Oh, in the Apocrypha, you find five more. Raphael and so on. Uriel. But that's in, in the Apocrypha, it's not in Scripture. And now we read that Jesus is much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, God knows all the angels one by one and He has given them names, but only two are revealed because Scripture is not a book about angelology. Scripture is a book about the salvation, the creation, and the salvation of human beings. That's what scripture is all about. Superior to the angels. Yes, because he created them. Then we read, through whom he created all things. Yes. He made the universe, and the angels included And now note the characteristics that you find throughout the New Testament that Jesus created Satan. And Satan wants to take his place by way of the Antichrist, Antichristos, in the place of Christ. And Satan always fails time and again now, here we have then the superior, superiority of Christ over against the angels. That's understood. Now we go to chapter 3 and I read about Moses. Okay, let's backtrack for just a moment. If I would ask, who of all creatures is nearest God? You say, Angels. Okay, we got that straight. Now, you are going to be Jewish people for just a moment. And I say, who is the greatest leader of Israel? Moses. Moses. Okay, now read with me chapter 3. I read verse 3. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built with someone, but God is the builder of everything. Verse (coughs) 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Now, compare. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Christ is faithful Faithful as a son over God's house. Who is the greater? No, you guessed. Chapter 5. So, now, again, I ask you people as Jews. Who is the greatest religious person in Israel? Not talking about Moses now. Religious. And that is Aaron. Okay, now we go to chapter 5. Verse 4. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says, In another place you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Aaron, yes, called by God, appointed by God, But Christ is greater because he is son and he is priest. That is, a royal priest. And Moses was not. Pardon me, Aaron was not. Now we go on to chapter 7. And there's only one left. Who is greater? Melchizedek, Or Jesus? Well, we read about Melchizedek in chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of God Most High. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Okay, that's all translation. We are with you. Yes, yes, continue, please. Without father or mother, without genealogy. And... What do you do with that without father? No, everyone has to have a father and a mother except for Adam. God created Adam. So how do you explain without father or mother? Well, when you go to Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses, there is the genealogy of Jesus. Royalty. And in order to be a priest, you had to say, I can trace my lineage all the way back to Aaron. All the way back to Levi. Yes. And therefore, I am a born Levite, or priest. Well, obviously, Melchizedek couldn't say that. So, he didn't have a lineage of father and mother. He's without genealogy. Without beginning of days or end of life, we don't know how long this man lived. And now comes the last Clause, Read it with me, will you? Chapter 7, verse 3. Last clause. Like the Son of God, he became a priest forever. It's not... Melchizedek was like Jesus. Yes, excuse me, correct this. It is not... Jesus became like Melchizedek. No, it's the other way around. Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Who's the greater? Well, there's no question about it. He's greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, and lot greater than Melchizedek. Okay, back to chapter 1. We're not quite finished yet. There's more. What do you do with verse 5? You are my son. Today I have become your father. Good translation. The King James says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Jehovah's Witnesses will jump all over you and say, See, there it is, begotten. (laughs) Today, you know, what else do you need? Yeah. no, no, what, what to say? Well, go to Colossians chapter one, will you? Colossians chapter one, where you read in verse fifteen, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. That is, He precedes everyone. Not that He's he's born. Well, yes, He was born of Mother Mary. But we're talking about the eternity of the Son of God. He is the forerunner. By Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or Rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The church is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. Once more, the firstborn, that is, the forerunner. So that in everything He might have the supremacy. Colossians tells us about the eternity of the Son. And now, going to <clears throat> Psalm 2, verse 7, where we have the same thing. And a good translation is found in the modern translations. I have here the NIV in front of me. You are my son. Today I have become, and I continue to be your father. It's not just today. No, forever. I am always your father. And then he backs it up with the messianic promise given to David concerning his son Solomon. I will be his father and he will be my son. Yes, but it's fulfilled in the Messiah. And then he has two more texts. One, let all God's angels worship him. We talked about that already. Here is The Christ, the creator of the angel world. And he's far above the angel world. And in speaking of the angels, he says. He makes his angels' winds, his servants' flames of fire. How do we explain this? Well, go with me to verse 14 of this same chapter. Verse 14. Read it with me, will you? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, how do you explain verse 14? Well, read it. It says, All angels are ministering spirits. That's all. And they are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That is, you and I inherit salvation. Now, if I were to ask you, are angels higher in rank than you and I? And you immediately say, Yes, of course. You know, they surround the throne of God. They are sinless. and you shake your head and say no And the answer is look angels don't have bodies you and I have a body and a soul next angels don't propagate we talk about humanity and we talk about the communion communion of saints the body of Christ so you have fathers and mothers and children and grandchildren and you have uncles and aunts and nephews and nieces and you have cousins look that's it that's humanity redeemed humanity I'm talking about and now I'm going to make up a a name or a word (laughs) angelity we don't have such a word it doesn't exist angels were created And not a single one was added. Okay, I'll continue. Angels were not made in the image of God. You and I were made in the image of God. Genesis chapter one. One more. Angels are not saved. It is fallen angels. They're consigned to the pit, to prison. Bound in chains. Read June chapter, ah, uh, there's only one chapter, <laughs> verse 6. And read 2nd uh, Peter chapter 2, and I think it is also about verse five, four, five. Those 5, <clears throat> that neighborhood. Angels are not reading. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 16. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. There it is. And last, God did did not make a covenant with angels. He made a covenant with you and me. Who's greater? You and I are greater than angels. Far greater Okay, now back to verse 4. <clears throat> uh, verse 7, excuse me, of chapter 1. Chapter 1, 7. He makes his angels' winds, his servants' flames of fire. Yes, Frank. Sorry, Dr. Kistemacher. Actually, going back to verse 5, could you clarify when it says, you are my son today, I have become your father. What is today referring to? Is that the resurrection, the ascension? I would say that's the ever-present you find that in Psalm 2, in Psalm of David. So, when you have, you are my son, today I have, it means in the ever-present, you are always my son. But, to answer your question precisely, now you have to go <coughs> to Psalm 2. and Will you do that with me? Psalm 2. Look, in verse 2, you read, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's the Messiah. See it? Let us break their th- chains, they say, throw off their fetters. Verse 4, The one, capitalized, that's God, enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king, the Messiah, on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. So you may say, well, David composes and had this in mind for Solomon. Uh, Yes. Uh, True, but what do you do with the anointed one? What do you do with God saying I have installed my king, Messiah, on Zion, my holy hill? And then you have to come to the conclusion that although this is talking about the enthronement of Jesus, you can say it refers to the How do theologians put it? The eternal generation of the Son. That's how they put it. The eternal generation of the Son. Therefore, I say it's the ever-present. But thank you for the question. That's good. If there are any other questions, be sure to raise your hand if you completely confused both hands, okay? (laughs) These are rules of the game. Good. If there are no further questions, I go on to verse 8 and 9, chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. And if liberals would only read this text as it is, they would have not a leg to stand on denying the sovereignty, the eternity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Read it with me. Your throne... Now, who's the your? Well, obviously, that refers to the Son. Because he says, but about the Son, he says. Not about God. Your Son... Now, your throne, O God. Now, I know the liberals put it this way. Your divine throne will last forever and ever. Nonsense! Nonsense! Excuse me for putting it that way. That's not a translation. You have the vocative here. Oh God. That is, the recipient, the Son, is called God. Will last forever and ever. Your righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, that's putting it rather crossly. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is divine. We continue. Verse 10, a quote from Psalm 102. Verse 25. In the beginning, O Lord. Now, that immediately causes you to think of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. Well, yes, if you say in verse 2 that through whom the Son he made the universe, then Jesus is the agent of the creation of the world. Right? Here it is. In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. (coughs) They will be changed. But you remain the same. Your years will never end. Here is eternity. Can't you see? And then he finishes up the seventh. Notice again, seven, which is the number of completion, seven quotations from the Old Testament. Sit at my ra- right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Note the first sentence in verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say? And that's exactly the same what you find in verse 5, the introduction. For to which of the angels did God ever say? And I will quote from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's a messianic psalm. <clears throat> okay. Chapter 1 is taken care of. We're making progress. Twelve more to go. We'll have to go a bit faster now. You the introduction takes longer. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.